0: So, what what did everyone's morning look like today? You know, God gave us this beautiful, beautiful weather today, um, but did anyone get in a disagreement with their spouse, possibly over Sunday plans or where you're going out to eat afterwards? Anyone else's kids a little bit whiny this morning? You know, it's such a privilege that we have to come here every Sunday and worship in complete freedom, to feed our souls and spirits with the literal word of God. Yet, if you're like me and my family, we consider Sunday morning sometimes a success just making it the 10 minute car ride to church in peace. But what if we ignored all the noise and focused on hearts and minds on what truly was important, which is God's word, fellowship, and bettering ourselves for his purpose? This morning, we're going to continue our summer series on unusable characters by looking at the woman at the well found in John 4. I want to open in prayer first. Heavenly Father, um, we're just thankful to be here this morning and to have an opportunity to learn and grow from your example. We pray that our hearts and minds can be solely focused on you and not on anything else that we may have walked in with today. Help us not only to hear your words and commands, but to put into practice what we learn so that others may be touched and transformed by the way in which we live. We pray all these things in the sons of your, name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to jump right in and start reading uh, from our story here, the first part, John 4. You can open up your Bibles or you can follow on the screen behind me. Uh, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now we had to go through Samaria, so we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, the geography and the history of people groups in this story are important to understand so we can fully grasp the main points that I'm going to present. So I'm going to run through it really quick. So at the time of this encounter, there were three bordering regions. We had Galilee to the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea to the south. Jesus and the disciples were headed from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now, most Jews taking this trip would have gone the longer, indirect route which was east of the Jordan River, in order to completely avoid Samaria. Essentially, the preferred route was not where the GPS would send you. It's like if you were trying to get to Target in Waterford from here, but you drove all the way down Route 12 towards Norwich and down 395 to avoid the bridge. So why the indirect route? Well, the relationship between the Jews, which were the people of Judea, And the Samaritans, which were the Hebrews and the Gentiles, wasn't exactly what you'd call friendly, and definitely not loving. Think Red Sox versus Yankees in the height of that baseball rivalry, but much, much worse. For those of you who are not sports fans, just consider the different political parties, regardless of which side of the fence you fall on. See, Jews thought of Samaritans as idolatrous half-breeds, ethically polluted, religiously confused, and morally debased. From our target example, the Jews weren't just bypassing a bridge. They were avoiding the entire people altogether. Now, the text tells us in verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So in order to travel the most direct route, yes. But also Jesus chose this particular route. And on the way, he stops at Sychar on the southeast slope of Mount Ebal in Samaria. The reason why will become more clear as we understand the full story. Jesus intended to meet the woman, or at the very least, intended to have some meaningful interaction with a Samaritan along his way to Galilee. But I'm going to assume that Jesus, being fully God while being fully man, knew exactly who he would encounter along the way. In addition, the appearance and state of the woman, Samaritan woman, was anything but a coincidence. First off, she came to the well during the heat of the day. The text says the sixth hour, which would be about noon. Now, although it's not hot this morning, with the particularly hot weather that we've been experiencing, I think we all can appreciate that the best time to carry five gallons of water, about 40 pounds, would have been either early in the morning or in the evening, but certainly not in the dead heat of the middle of the day. Secondly, she came to the well alone. Now, in that day, women generally went to the well in groups to socialize and to share in the labor of drawing water. These two facts tell us everything we need to know about the woman's social status, even within her own Samaritan town. It was likely low, and for some reason, as we'll learn, she was at the margins of her society. We pick up the story in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now Jesus goes on to ask the woman to bring her husband to him, knowing full well that she's had multiple husbands, and that the current man that she's with is not actually her husband. See, the woman believes she's speaking to a prophet, but she hasn't quite connected the dots yet. Continuing in verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or, Why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, come. See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So this brings us to our first of three main points this morning, which is that we must focus on what God focuses on. As a people, we focus on the wrong things. We are distracted and lost in busyness. Our eyes and affections are aimed towards the wrong things, with the world constantly competing for our attention. We allow our culture to dictate the way in which we view and pursue each day, and it hinders us from our true purpose. Now, I'm not claiming to be the only one here this morning who's busy, but here's a snapshot into a day in the life of Aaron. Wake up at 4.30 for a run, devotion, quiet time, which is also conveniently my cool-down time. Get ready for work, feed the cat, drop Reese off at school, drive 50 minutes to work, work all day, drive 50 minutes home, dinner with the family, bath for the kids, time with the kids, put the kids to bed, time with my wife, back to work in my home office, some nights, in bed around 12 or 1, then wake up and do it all again the next day. Now, you want to talk about being able to get caught up in the mundane. Just a small portion of my day is solely dedicated to the Lord. Our always-on-the-go culture has us believe that maintaining schedules, personal achievement, success in our jobs, earning money to pay bills, our health, and our own personal relaxation time should be our focus. But by allowing this flawed thinking to take root in our lives, we completely overlook and forget why God created us, why he put us exactly where we are, with the people we live with, work with, and come in contact with. Our priorities do not align with God's plan. In my situation, there's plenty of mornings I find myself taking even that small amount of alone time with God as flexible instead of essential. What God hopes for and deserves of my time, I end up giving away or skipping for much less important tasks, like getting ready for work, checking my fantasy football team, which seems to stink every year, (laughs) tuning into my sports talk radio station, or getting a jump start on the day's work ahead. We fail to dedicate ourselves on a daily basis to the only thing that should matter, which is growing our relationship with God and equipping ourselves to share the gospel with others. But God is not distracted by culture the way the world is. We see right off the bat that Jesus, even as tired, dirty, and hungry as he was from his teaching and travel, presses forward to interact with and pursue the woman. The disciples, meanwhile, had gone into town to find food. They were focused on physical needs. Now, I'm not saying that meeting physical needs is a bad thing, but John makes it clear in his writing that their focus wasn't Jesus' focus, and they didn't care much to share in it. Like us, they were short-sighted and singularly focused on visceral, less important factors. Matthew 6, 31 to 33 says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You know, it seems so easy to see the error of their ways, yet we find ourselves doing exactly the same thing. A second problem. The woman was concerned with social barriers that existed during that time. Her first response to Jesus' request for a drink in verse 9 was solely focused on the fact that he was a Jew She was a Samaritan, and there was no scenario that would warrant such an interaction. We allow cultural views and social standards to dictate the situations that we are willing to enter into, and the types of people that we share our faith with. But Jesus engaged in conversation with the woman. And throughout the New Testament, there was not a social setting Jesus was unwilling to encounter, or a type of person that Jesus wouldn't interact with. In fact, verse 34 tells us, Jesus was excited and energized by spiritual food. The disciples were so caught up in what they were doing that they couldn't even see how excited and energetic Jesus was, and they didn't even bother to ask him. You see, Jesus was ignoring social barriers just to talk to her. He didn't run from the situation, but instead was allowing God to work through it by appealing to her spiritual needs. Now, Jesus did have physical needs. He was thirsty. He knew it, and she had the water that he needed. But more importantly, the woman was thirsty. He had the water that she needed, and she did not know it. So what's the takeaway? When we see things the way God sees them, culture cannot compete with Christ. Some applications. I can listen to the world and make marriage about me, my pleasure, and my desires, or I can make God's focus my focus and love my wife the way that Christ loves the church. I can treat my kids as an inconvenience. And with how expensive things are these days, that's pretty easy to do. Or I can make God's focus my focus and know that it's truly a blessing and opportunity to serve and disciple my children. I can think of work as a mere means to a paycheck. Or... I can make God's focus my focus and actually see, pray for, and engage with the people with whom I come in contact with. Focus on what God focuses on. Going back to verse 13, Jesus explains to the woman that everyone who drinks from the physical well water will remain thirsty, but those who drink from living water that he is offering will have eternal life. This brings us to our second point, which is that we need to see people the way God sees them. We often pass judgment on people before we give them a chance. We see, we see people where they are, where they've been, but not where they're going, and that includes ourselves. So what kinds of people do we write off? That coworker who's never in a good mood and carries on with a seemingly miserable existence? We may offer a word of encouragement, try to be an example to them by the way that we live, but it's clear that they want nothing to do with that religion stuff that we've tried to share. How about our boss, who is never satisfied with the work we produce? They set unachievable standards, and no matter how hard we work, it's not good enough. There's no way that man or woman could ever have a change of heart and come to Jesus, right? What about the person who gets us coffee at our favorite establishment? Now, I'm not gonna mention any specific places. I don't wanna lose half of you on which side I choose. Although, ever since August last year when I had COVID, coffee hasn't really smelled or tasted the same, so I don't really care much for either place at this point. Anyways, our coffee person. He or she is always angry, always stressed, and we can never even get them to crack a small smile. Surely they could never find Jesus, right? Some of you may be asking, well, why shouldn't I be able to write people off? The answer, because God doesn't. Look at the thief on the cross from Luke 23. Although the Bible doesn't specifically tell us the crimes he had committed, crucifixion was a form of capital punishment, so there likely would have been enough evidence to convict the man to death. He was a man who lived a severely flawed and sinful life. But despite his sins, at the very end, as he hung next to Jesus on his cross, he recognized Christ as the Messiah. All he had to say to Jesus was, Remember me. His posture of humility was enough. Jesus saw his heart and told him that he would be with him in paradise. A couple of modern-day examples. Let's look at Kurt Cameron. I did some research on this one. Um, He's probably best known for the lovable troublemaker Mike Seaver and the 80s sitcom Growing Pains. A rising Hollywood star from the age of 14, he had everything he ever wanted. He was also a staunch atheist most of his life. Yet, once he was introduced to the church and to Christ, his life was forever transformed. Today, we may know him as the journalist Buck Williams in the Christian movie series Left Behind. He also leads and participates in multiple Christ-centered organizations, one of which connects terminally ill children and their families to others who share in that burden, and another which teaches Christians how to spread the gospel to the unsaved. What about C.S. Lewis? He lost his mother at age 10, and his father never recovered from it. So he and his brother had a distant relationship with their father and a very tough life at home growing up. He too became an avowed atheist, convinced that the God that he read about in the Bible his mother gave him was nothing more than a cruel, abstract character. It was only after befriending multiple Christian faculty at Magdalen College years later at the age of 31 and recognizing that most of his other friends and favorite authors were Christians was he able to admit that God was God and surrender his life to Christ. Today, his 25 Christian books have sold millions of copies, and his sermons, talks, and Christian views broadcast worldwide have been essential in helping change the lives of countless people. You see, we make determinations on people prematurely, but God does not rate us on a scale of worthiness. We are all unworthy of salvation, yet equally loved by him. Romans 3, 23 to 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The disciples in this story reacted as we would have, in disbelief that Jesus had even stopped to talk to the Samaritan woman because she was as low on the social ladder as one could be. She was a Samaritan, a people used to being dismissed, ridiculed and rejected, and she was a woman with minimal social standing in the community, disrespected and unseen. Let's make the analogy that sin puts us in a pit, 100 feet deep. In relation to the top of the pit, sure, there may be murderers and dictators or gang leaders standing at the very bottom. There are others who struggle with drug and alcohol addiction, mistreat their spouse or children, struggle with sex or pornography, swear on a daily basis, or maybe they just talk badly about people behind their backs. Even though we may not be the worst of the worst, it's like grabbing a six-inch stool. Are we closer to the top? Technically, yes, but we're all still in the pit. Isaiah 64:6 6 tells us that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind... Our sin sweeps us away. Yet belief in Christ and accepting him as our personal savior will provide the ladder long enough for us to climb out completely, regardless of how deep in the pit that we are. 1 John 2.2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And John 1.12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Jesus cares about people's souls more than he cares about cultural, political, or religious divides. And so we must see people the way God sees them. The story concludes. I'm going to pick back up in verse 35. Do you not say, Four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crops for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying goes, One sows and another reaps. is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So this brings us to our last point this morning, which is God turns baggage into boldness. God uses our past and present shortcomings for his purpose. When we accept Christ as our Savior and drink the living water, we are empowered by God through the Holy Spirit to be bold and provoke change in the world. Like us, the disciples did not appreciate the urgency of their call. They were willing to forgo the opportunity to have meaningful interactions with Samaritans in order to fulfill their immediate needs. We do the same thing on a daily basis putting off prayer for individuals who need it, or procrastinating on having that conversation about Jesus with a family member or co-worker. We presume tomorrow. Meanwhile, death continues to reap. The time for action is now. Rereading verse 35. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Also from 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Look at the Samaritan woman. Immediately following her encounter with Jesus, she wasted no time, even leaving behind her water jug at the well, and ran back to town to proclaim the name of Jesus. She was no longer hung up on her own past sins, her social status, or what people thought about her. She couldn't waste another moment to tell everyone who she had met and how her life had been changed. And the Samaritans listened. Now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, but I just have too much baggage. Let me assure you, no one is too far gone or too sinful to be saved and used by God. We heard from Jeff the last week about Paul. If any person in history was ever unusable... It was a man whose main goal throughout the first portion of his life was to persecute and eliminate Christians from the earth. Yet even this man, flawed and sinful as he was, was confronted by and saved through the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus Christ. And from that moment, Paul's baggage was taken away, and he spent the rest of his life making the single greatest impact on Christianity and the Christian church of anyone in history, aside from Jesus, of course. If that biblical example is not enough for you, I'm up here this morning as someone who was once lost and unusable. Although I grew up in this church, had a solid foundation and faith in Christ, I lost my way during college and the years that followed. Drug addiction, sexual impurity, and putting on a facade for Sunday morning church is where I found myself, a completely unusable state. Only by the power and mercy of Christ do I find myself back living a godly life and being used by him for kingdom work. Amen. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5:17 reads, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come." You see, the hard work has already been done. Christ died on the cross. To save us all from our sins, we just need to be bold and reap what's already been sown. Amen. Matthew eleven twenty eight to thirty says, "Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Amen. Come to Jesus with your baggage; he'll take it off your shoulders give you living water, remind you who you really are, whose you really are, and send you off changed. God turns baggage into boldness. Culture drives how we think, how we feel, and how we act if we allow it to. It impresses upon us worldly ideology that rarely aligns with God's purpose and plan. The story of the woman in the well is proof of how our self-satisfying culture can and will steer us away from where God wants us to be. The disciples were focused on their physical needs rather than the woman's and their own spiritual needs. Jesus was not. He focused on what God focuses on. The woman struggled to see past her status and cultural boundaries. Jesus did not. He was able to see people the way God sees them. And only after a profound encounter with Jesus and by placing her trust in him was the woman freed to spread the good news and do kingdom work because God turns baggage into boldness. Amen. I'm going to conclude by reading a passage from 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 10. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ.